our salvation is difficult. We face hardship on this side of heaven. In fact, Jesus said, look, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you also. In Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the persecuted. You should expect hardship as a follower of Christ. And so as we go through those moments of hardship and trial, do it without complaining. Work out your salvation. And so this is principle. This is pattern. Verses 1 through 16 is how we are to walk as Christians in a manner worthy of the gospel. In verse 17, he jumps into, here's example. Here's illustration. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning in the life of Paul, the life of Timothy, and the life of Epaphroditus. Would you join me in a word of prayer first? Let's go to the, to the, to the Lord before we dive into his word. Heavenly Father, it is truly a humbling privilege to be able to come before your throne, for you alone are worthy to be worshipped. You alone are holy, holy, holy. Even Isaiah says, you are the high and exalted one. You are God Almighty, and there is no one, like David writes, there is no one like you. Father, what an amazing privilege it is for us to come before you. And when we recognize how great and awesome and powerful you are, Lord, that should cause us to recognize how small and frail and weak we are. But Lord, you say in the psalm that we are the crown of your creation. What an amazing privilege. Thank you for sending your son to make a way for us to have a relationship with you that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Father, we've been redeemed, we've been justified by grace through faith. Father, it is amazing joy. It is an amazing position. It's an amazing privilege to be able to say we are a son or a daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, we praise you for that. As we just sang, we are here to worship you because you alone are worthy. Father, I thank you for the challenges that we see here in the book of Philippians to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live lives of humility, to be humble amongst one another. So Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, you would give us ears to hear, give us an uh, a willingness to be obedient to you, to whatever you might lay upon our, our hearts. You know exactly what we need to hear this morning. So Father, I pray that we would be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. And Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We live in a culture that says there is no truth. Yet Lord, here it is to be able to read this love letter that you've written for us, displaying your character, displaying your kindness, your goodness, your grace, but also that you are a God of wrath and a God of judgment. Father, I thank you that we get a whole full picture of who you are. And you've also laid out for us how to live. So Lord, I pray that as your followers, that as followers of Christ and as Christians, Lord, we would truly live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, and then all that we say and do and think, it would be honoring and pleasing to you. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we look at verse 17, I think it's important to understand Paul's heartbeat as he wrote these letters to the different churches. Paul had a special love for the believers. In fact, it's highlighted in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. The love that Paul had for the believers compelled him to live sacrificially, to live unreservedly. 
He was confident that in the day of Christ, when he would stand before the Lord, he, he would be able to say, I did not labor in vain. I did not toil in vain. It was all worthwhile. He was driven to do what he did. He was compelled to do what he did. He knew God had called him. He knew God had gifted him. He knew God had revealed to him that which he needed to know, and he wanted to do it well, and he wanted to do it to his fullest capacity. My friends, when we look at Paul, And then even Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're looking at men of great passion and men of great zeal. These are not passive. These are not apathetic. They are not indifferent men. These are examples of bold, courageous humility that are all in for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God the Father, and for building the kingdom of God. These are men driven by the love of Christ. So Paul writes in verse 17 there of chapter 2, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul's saying, look, my life is being poured out as an offering. Now, there are two different camps when You look at verse 17, there are some that say he's referring to his death. He's saying, look, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to to die for the the sake of Christ. And then there are those who who refer to, no, it's not his death. It's his life that's being poured out as a drink offering. And I I sit in the second camp because chapter 1, verse 25, Paul highlights, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul was convinced that he would remain and that his life would continue to be a sacrifice unto the Lord. It's what he writes in Romans chapter 12. He is a living sacrifice, not a dying sacrifice. He's a living sacrifice. And he's saying, look, my life is being poured out as a a drink offering or what is also known as a libation. And this is something that Jews and Gentiles would have known alike. Uh, We can... Go back all the way to Leviticus and 2 Kings and Jeremiah. But this was a ritual that was familiar to many ancient people. What they would do is they would offer their sacrifice. They'd put meat on the altar. And then they would take some wine and they would pour it out either on top of the meat or alongside the altar. And it was an additional offering. And it would provide a a, a soothing aroma in the air as it quickly evaporated. But the, the point of it is, and you have to catch this. This is Paul's humility right here. He's saying, Philippians, you are the main offering. It's all about what you are doing in Christ. Paul, it's amazing. Paul could easily say, look, I'm the apostle. I'm the great missionary. I'm the great teacher. I'm the great discipler. Look at me. Look what, I, what I'm doing. And, and, and be aware that I'm under house arrest and focus on my issues and my hardships. And, and he doesn't do any of that. He says, man, I'm, I'm grateful for you because you are the main offering. Your sacrifice Your sacrifice in in faith and in service is the main sacrifice on the altar. And whatever it may cost me as my life is being poured out, there are no regrets because I love the Lord and I love you and it's a privilege to serve you. That's basically what he's saying there where he's saying, "I'm, I'm just being poured out as a drink offering upon your offering. You are the main thing. And so he says, rejoice with me. I'm rejoicing in you. I'm praising God for what you are doing. Rejoice with me. And let's share our joy together. I think it's unfortunate that many believers don't experience true joy. Sometimes what happens in a church and in our own lives is we bring in the philosophy of the world where we think happiness deals with our things and our possessions and with people. And when things aren't quite the way we want them to be, 
we get discontent, we get sad, we get resentful. But joy, not happiness, joy comes by sacrificing our lives to Christ for the service of Christ. Many, um, my prayer is that we would experience the type of joy that Paul experienced by, willing, by, by being willing to lay our lives down for the glory of God. You see, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. One author wrote, A believer can sacrifice nothing for the Lord that is not replaced with something infinitely more valuable and gratifying. It's always an exchange of the lesser for the greater. And I believe that's what led Paul to write Philippians 3. If you look at verse 8, he writes this, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul had it all, according to what the world would have said. He had an amazing heritage, an amazing upbringing. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he had it all, an amazing resume, a great heritage. And yet he's saying, I'm willing to lose all of that so that I can gain Christ. Because Christ is the greatest worth the greatest value. I'm willing to say everything else is rubbish compared to gaining Christ. So now we come to the second example, the life of Timothy. Verse 19, Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So Paul is a great demonstration, a great example of humility. Timothy is a great example of having the single-minded mission, of just having the single focus in life. Paul is going to send Timothy from Rome, which is where Paul is under house arrest currently. He's going to send Timothy from Rome to Philippi. Well, why send Timothy? Why send Timothy? Well, verse 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. Kindred spirit can be translated equal souled. In other words, Paul knew that he couldn't trust this mission with anyone else like he could trust Timothy. I mean, Timothy and Paul were of the same mind, the same focus, the same passion. They were sold out for the same thing. And, and Paul knew that he could trust Timothy with everything. If you're not aware, Paul had discipled Timothy for years. And as one author wrote, over the course of time, Timothy came to think like Paul, to relate to believers and unbelievers like Paul, to evaluate ideas, situations, trends, concerns like Paul, and to trust the Lord for direction like Paul. Paul's saying, look, we are, we are of kindred spirit. We are of equal soul. soul. We are in the same mind and the same passion and the same pursuit. And again, don't miss the great display of humility here from Paul. Before Paul came to know Christ, when he was still a great Pharisee, he would have looked down upon anyone who was not Jewish. They called the Gentiles dogs. It was a, a term of slander. But even worse than a Gentile was a half-breed. 
a, a, a child of a, of a Jewish man or Jewish woman who gave up their heritage and, 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 and sacrificed following the Lord for marrying a, a Gentile. And that's what Timothy was. He was a half-breed. His mother was Jewish and his father was Gentile. And, and yet Paul is saying here, look, we're equal soul. This is, this is the unity that the gospel brings the unity that the gospel presents. I mean, even before the church has it completely figured out, like, are we, how do we welcome Gentiles into the church fold? How, how do we do this? Paul is saying to Timothy, this half-breed, he's saying, hey, come serve with me. We're going to go impact the church. And they do for years together. Paul refers to Timothy in 1 Corinthians as my child in the Lord. In 1 Timothy, my true child in the faith, my fellow worker, my brother. In fact, Timothy becomes Paul's troubleshooter his problem solver. Timothy is willing to go on behalf of Paul to Corinth, to Macedonia, to Ephesus, to here we see Philippi, to Thessalonica. I mean, this is a great display of humility from Paul saying, come with me, let's serve together. We're equal souls. Even though the Jews and even though the world would consider you maybe as nothing, you're you're an emerging leader in the church. And that's what Paul saw in Timothy on his second missionary trip. And he brings Timothy along to serve with him to impact the church. Not only does he have a kindred spirit, but he has a great compassion as well. Verse 20, Paul highlights, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. The adverb genuinely shows that this is not just a Sunday morning type of concern where you say, hey, how are you? Good? Okay, keep going. This is genuinely concerned, like, how are you doing? What can I do for you? What can I pray for? How can I help you? What can I do to serve you and your family? How can I come alongside of you in the, in the trench of spiritual warfare to, to encourage you, to build you up, to support you? This is, he's genuinely concerned. And what's interesting about the word concerned is it's also the same word that we find in chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, be anxious for nothing. So Timothy's concern is the same as anxious in chapter 4. So Paul's highlighting it. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Paul's saying, I'm grateful Timothy's concerned for you. But then in chapter 4, he's saying, be anxious for nothing. So what's the difference? Well, obviously, there's a huge difference between unhealthy, unspiritual, untrusting anxiety and godly concern. Untrusting anxiety is a result of pride. It's if the idea that if we can't handle it, even God can't fix it. Paul uses the same word, concern, in 2 Corinthians 11, where he highlights, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is being led into the trap of sin without my intense concern? Listen, Paul is saying there's actually a good kind of worry a good kind of pressure, a good kind of deep, intense concern. And it's not over your life and over your world and over your family and over your job, the things that most people worry about. Instead, it's over the flock, over the spiritual growth of the church, over the gospel belief, over the outreach of the gospel through the church. Paul and Timothy have a genuine concern that the believers would not be led astray, that they wouldn't be caught up with the philosophies of the world. What Paul and Timothy are displaying here is a genuine heart of a shepherd. A true shepherd, a true pastor, agonizes over the health of the body of Christ with concern 
that those, those who are young sheep are being protected and maturing, the maturing sheep are that they're being fed and that they're serving, and that the older sheep are producing the ripe fruit of the Spirit of God as they pour into the younger generations and make disciples. This is the true heart of a pastor, of an elder, of a deacon, of a volunteer, of a godly parent, of a godly teacher, of a discipler, of a mentor. This is a true servant's heart of saying, I am actually concerned for you and your spiritual well-being. Paul says, Timothy, Timothy's going to show up and he's going to actually care. He's not just going to see how you're doing, sign a paper, check the box, and head back. He's going to actually care and he's going to be there for you. Timothy's also highly unique. Paul says, for I have no one else, in verse 20. Verse 21, he says, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul drives home this tragic point that there are few in the church that actually care and that are actually focused on the work of Christ. Now, there are other pastors in Rome. In fact, if you turn to chapter 1, verse 15, he says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. There were other pastors who were in Rome who were kind of worried about, hey, let's share the gospel and gather a group to myself because it's kind of about me. They were focused on their own interests. Notice that in verse 21, he says, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. They were concerned about building up a crowd, building up a gathering. And Paul compares Timothy to these other men and says, no, Timothy, when Timothy shows up, he's going to talk about Jesus and the gospel, and he's going to be concerned about you, not himself, not himself. I came across an article here this past week where it was talking about um, the uh, neuroscience world. I'm not a scientist, but they were highlighting the fact that if you're like most people, you have a hands-down favorite topic for most of your conversations. It's yourself. On average, they said, people spend 60% of their conversations talking about themselves. And 80% to 90% if you're on social media, like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. That's why it's so addicting and so hard to get off of your phone, because you want to, you want to be the first one to comment, or you want to have, see if someone commented about you, or you want to be able to post something that you have done. And Maybe you wake up first thing in the morning, you jump on to check the news. That way, when you walk into work, you can be the top knowledge in the room. We love talking about ourselves. And they did research from Harvard. 195 participants came in to simply talk about a variety of subjects while they scanned their brain activity. You know what they found? Is that when we talk about ourselves, it triggers the same portion of the brain that is triggered in motivation or reward or pleasure. So the article summarized it this way. Activation of this system in the brain when discussing oneself suggests that self-disclosure may be inherently pleasurable and that people may be motivated to talk about themselves more than other topics, no matter how interesting or important those non-self-related topics may be. In other words, we love talking about ourselves because it feels good. It is actually producing a neurological buzz that feels good. Who do you talk most about? Do you talk about Jesus, or are you quick to talk about yourself? Paul says when Timothy shows up, he's not going to be talking about himself. He's not gathering people to himself. He's gathering people to the name of Christ. 
it actually takes a level of humility to ignore the topic of self because it kind of hurts because we want to highlight us left alone to our own devices. Pride quickly steps in and it can even happen in the church as we see here in Rome where even pastors are talking and gathering people to themselves. And what happens is we find a friend who's willing to listen to to us talk about ourselves and so we return the favor and we let them talk about themselves and we think that's fellowship. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is caring for our brothers and sisters. Fellowship is standing in the trench of spiritual warfare side by side saying, let's serve the Lord together. Fellowship is focusing on Christ and seeing how can we build one another up. Notice the phrase Paul says in verse 21. They're seeking after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. What is Jesus interested in? This is just a brief survey. It's not an exhaustive list in any way, but Jesus is focused on caring for others, sharing the news of the kingdom, sending his disciples out to spread the gospel, raising a spiritual harvest, fashioning lives into transformed vessels. He's interested in you. He's interested in the lost. He's interested in the glory of his Father. He's interested in the coming of his kingdom. What are you and I interested in? Two quick ways to find out is look at how you spent your time this past week and look how you spent your money this past week. What are we interested in? What do we talk about? What are we focused on? Timothy was focused on bringing glory to God and humility defined his devotion. It created his care and it shaped his uniqueness. He stood out amongst the rest. Lastly, in the few minutes we have yet, We'll look at Epaphroditus here. Paul highlights him starting in verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore... I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. And I may be less concerned about you. Verse 29, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Who is this man? Who's Epaphroditus? In fact, if it wouldn't be for the book of Philippians, we would know absolutely nothing about this man. But Epaphroditus, what we learn from this chapter and also chapter 4, is that he was, he was a, a regular man, part of the congregation there at the church of Philippi. I mean, if you and I find it hard to relate to Jesus Christ as the example of humility, I understand that because he's perfect. And that is hard to relate to. Maybe when we look at Paul, we find it hard to relate to him because he's the great apostle, the great missionary. And maybe even Timothy's a little hard to relate to because he had this amazing mentor that poured into his life for years. So if there's one that we can all relate to pretty quickly, it's Epaphroditus. He's just a regular follower of Christ, nothing different, nothing unique, nothing extraordinary about him. He just wants to obey and follow the Lord. And Paul highlights him here in the book of Philippians for us. He was 
given the task, if you would, by the church of Philippi to bring a financial gift from Philippi to Rome to help Paul in his expenses since he was under house arrest. And he's also sent to minister to Paul's needs. And, and the understanding there that uh, in the language and even what scholars highlight is that he was to, to remain with Paul until either Paul was killed for his faith, like martyred, or until Paul was released. But Paul sends Epaphroditus home early. And I believe Paul anticipated some criticism from the church. Why why is he back early? Why why is he home already? Did it get too hot in Rome? Was he lazy? Was he hard to work with? Did he just quit? And so Paul quickly, in verse 25, summarizes uh, five different uh, phrases that defend Epaphroditus' reputation, saying he has done what you've called him to do. He was your messenger. He was a minister to my need, but he's also a fellow brother, fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. Let's look at those three here just briefly. This kind of camaraderie of being a brother was unknown in the world of Paul. In, in first century, uh, in, the, in the first century, their world did not understand this type of camaraderie because you had citizens and you had slaves. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. You had Romans and you had Greeks. There were so many boundaries and, 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 and uh, differences that there wasn't camaraderie like you are my brother. And notice, again, Paul's huge uh, testimony of humility. Epaphroditus was a Gentile. His name actually comes from Aphrodite, the god of pleasure. I mean, he's as Gentile as you can get. And Paul here again is saying, he's my brother, my fellow companion because of the gospel and our common faith in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of how the gospel should impact us where we have men and women of every race and every background of society following Christ, transformed. And without policy or pressure, we serve one another as an actual family of God. Paul goes further to say, not only my brother, but he's also a fellow worker. And this is the Greek word that we get synergy from. They were synergized. They were working hand in hand, side by side. Epaphroditus didn't just come to serve Paul. He served with Paul, and he was effective in his ministry. That's speaking highly. Um, Paul's speaking highly of Epaphroditus. He's not, Paul's saying, he didn't just show up and give you, me the gift that you sent with him. He actually came and ministered greatly by my side. There was a church that once put a sign up outside you know, with the letters like we, we have out here, and, and it said, Jesus only. A few days later, the wind stirred up. Blew the, it blew the first few letters away, and it just said, us only. And unfortunately, unfortunately that's true sometimes of churches or believers. It's us only. And we want to stay in our comfort and just stay where we're at. But I'm grateful that the church of Philippi wasn't about us only. They were willing to send someone to Paul to help serve, to help meet his needs, to help minister with them. God has not designed the church to be us only. God has designed the church to be about sharing the gospel to the lost, being in the community and making an impact, shining our light, as the worship team had read. Are we shining our light in this community into the darkness, or are we putting a basket over our lamp? Paul and Tim, uh, excuse me, Epaphroditus was not just a fellow brother and a fellow worker, but he was also a fellow soldier 
This word in the Greek language is used of great honor. This word was used in, in some, uh, some ancient literature referring to soldiers, a common soldier where a commander-in-chief or a great strategist would say, you are my fellow soldier. In other words, you are equal with me. You are a fellow strategist, commander-in-chief. You are a fellow elite soldier beside me. Epaphroditus uh, was a fellow soldier of Paul. Paul is lifting Epaphroditus up and saying, look, in the, ma- in the matter of spiritual warfare, Epaphroditus stood side by side with me. And we were fellow soldiers together, moving forward for the glory of Christ. So why did Epaphroditus return home? Well, he was sick. Verse 20, 26, excuse me. Paul writes, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Now, we don't know if what kind of illness this was. In fact, the word sick in the Greek could even include possibly martyrdom. He might have lost his life in some dangerous situation sharing the gospel. This was not just like eating bad spaghetti in Philippi. This is is grave danger or sickness. In fact, it was grave enough or long enough that news could go from Rome, where Paul and Epaphroditus were, to Philippi, where the Philippians got distressed about Epaphroditus, and long enough for news to get back from Philippi to Rome, where Epaphroditus learned that they were distressed for him, so he was distressed for them, and Paul was distressed for... It just, it's like this, it sounds crazy, but they're all concerned about one another. This is true concern. This isn't like, oh, he's sick, okay, move on. I mean, they were distressed about him, and so Paul sent Epaphroditus back so they wouldn't be distressed anymore, so that Paul wouldn't be distressed about them being distressed. I mean, this is great humility, great concern, great care. And I love what Paul says in verse 27, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. Paul again is demonstrating humility. He doesn't say, look, I prayed for him, or we gathered a a group together and we prayed for him and and kind of highlighting what he did. He said, but God. God gets the credit because it's God who had mercy on him. And I love Paul's transparency as well because Paul says there in verse 27, he says, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, wave after wave after wave after wave of grief in my life. Paul's saying if Epaphroditus would have passed away, it would have been a great hurt. Now you might say, well, isn't this the same guy that wrote in chapter 1, to die is gain? He also writes in 1 Thessalonians that we don't sorrow as those without hope. But here Paul is just being completely transparent, recognizing that when we lose a brother or sister in Christ, there is sorrow. We don't sorrow as those without hope. We know that one day we will, we will be joined together in the, in the kingdom before the Lord. But there is sorrow. And Paul's saying, man, I'm so close to Timothy and Epaphroditus that if he would have passed, it would have been wave after wave after wave of grief upon my life. So he's praising the Lord. Praising the Lord that his fellow brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier has been able to be restored in his health. Notice in Verse 30, as we close here, Paul writes, excuse me, in verse 29, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Paul says he, he risked everything for Christ. You might say, well, how so? Well, Epaphroditus was willing to travel from Philippi to Rome. That's their travel. You didn't just jump in a taxi and, and show up the same day. I mean, it, it was dangerous to travel in those days. But not only that, Epaphroditus is willing to come and sit with Paul who is under house arrest, who could possibly lose his life because of the faith, which means most likely if you're hanging out with Paul and he's losing his life because of the faith, you're going to lose your life too. And Paul's saying he risked everything. He left, we don't know if he was married, we don't know if he had a job, we don't know what his home situation was, but he was willing to leave everything to come and serve Paul, to serve the Lord by serving Paul. Paul says he risked everything. So hold him in high regard. He is an excellent model of courage and humility. I love how Paul in this chapter highlights great examples for us of what it looks like to live humbly and to walk with the Lord, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let me close with this. A pastor who passed away in the early 1800s, once wrote in his journal words that described Epaphroditus. He wrote this, Live so as to be missed. Live so as to be missed. Well, how do we do that? Well, it comes down to becoming a true brother or sister where we actually genuinely care for one another, where we're concerned for one another's well-being by becoming a fellow laborer like Epaphroditus where we're on mission together. Can I just say quickly, God did not save you to simply be a spectator. God saved you to be a participant in the church. And I know that because God has given us spiritual gifts to use to build up the church, to edify one another. We're grateful you're here. But if you're a spectator, I encourage you to move into the participant realm because God has called us and uniquely gifted us to serve Him by serving one another, by serving this community by sharing the gospel, by being on mission for the sake of Christ, by conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We live so as to be missed by serving someone, by caring for someone else, by living for the Lord, by risking all that we are for all that Christ is, for all that the church can become. What are your interests? Where is your focus? What do you love the most? Are we compelled by our love for Christ to say, I'm all in and I'm willing to risk it all for His honor and His glory? Humility, my friends, humility guarantees that we will live so as to be missed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a heavy challenge to live a life of humility because as we probably all know, it is easier it is easier to be focused on self. But Lord, I thank you and praise you for the examples that we have here in the book of Philippians. Father, would we be willing to examine our own lives, to examine our own hearts, to examine our own intentions and interests to see, are we truly about the work of the Lord? Are we truly about honoring you and bringing glory to you and furthering your kingdom? Or are we more like the pastors in Rome who, who preached the gospel, but it was out of envy and out of strife and out of desiring to gather people to themselves?
Father, I pray that you would help us to live humbly before you, that we would bring all glory and honor to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.